Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Matthew Taylor. I'm the Chief Executive of the RSA, and I'd like to welcome you all to today's online event. I'm absolutely thrilled to be joined today by Margaret Heffernan, CEO, entrepreneur, acclaimed author, and Professor of Practice at the University of Bath. Margaret has written six books, the third of which, Willful Blindness, Why We Ignored the Obvious at Our Peril, was named one of the most important business books of the decade by the Financial Times. Uh, Margaret's uh, latest book, uh, Uncharted, How to Map the Future, which I've been enjoying reading all week, was released in February this year uh, and couldn't be a more timely examination. When I say couldn't be a more timely, the final chapter of this book is about pandemic preparation. So uh, it really couldn't be a more timely examination of the inherent unpredictability and uncertainty of life. So, uh, Margaret, welcome. Uh, Thank you for joining me. And before we start, how are things with you uh, personally? How are you coping with the crisis? Um, I'm coping pretty well, I think. I'm fortunate enough to live in the countryside so I can get out and about and get exercise and fresh air. Um, I live next to a farm shop, and um, when the farmer was complaining that he'd like to do deliveries but didn't have any people to do it, I rashly, thoughtlessly jumped in and said, oh, I'll do it. <laughs> so I now find myself um, running a team of 10 drivers delivering to people who can't get out. So um, I'm very puzzled at this stage in my career to find myself back in management. Um, but it's nice to be doing something useful, and it's very impressive how eager people are to help. I think one of the challenges, so many challenges of this moment, but one of the challenges is, which you've obviously overcome by doing this really important work, is that for those of us who've got reasonably nice houses or a little bit of garden or we're we're knowledge workers anyway, so we're used to sitting in front of computers and having conversations online, you know, it isn't that difficult for us to get through this. And so it requires, doesn't it, a, a, a real act of continuous discipline to think about how it is feeling differently, not just for people working in hospitals or care homes, but for how it feels if you're in a little tiny flat with two or three children, you're terribly worried about money, uh, etc. Et we have to continue to exercise that imaginative muscle, don't we? Well, I think that's a really excellent point. And it's something I'm struck by, you know, as I do deliveries, you know, you knock on someone's door and a door open and you you typically see someone who's frightened you often see a lot of little kids, you know, in their pajamas, very harassed, mum or dad. Um, one door, I mean, I didn't knock on the door, but well, I rang the bell, but there was a note on the door saying, it's not you, it's us. There's a cancer sufferer in the house and, you know, we just daren't come to the door. And, you know, those are really visceral face-to-face reminders that, This is not a common shared experience. You know, this is an experience that ranges from mine, which is very comfortable, um, to one of abject desperation and loneliness. And I think the real challenge coming out of this is going to be not to assume that our experience is the experience and not to think that we can just think, oh, well, thank God that's over. Now we can get back to normal. Because people will be changed by this experience. We're all being changed by what we're seeing and thinking and feeling. And it's important that that be recognised in, you know, what comes next. Well, I really want to get onto those issues with you, Margaret, but I also want to explore some of the themes of the book. But before we do that, I have to remark on an amazing coincidence, 
which is that I think both you and I, in the last 24, 48 hours, came up with exactly the same suggestion. Uh, so I posted a blog yesterday saying that when it comes to the transition period we're about to enter between full lockdown and any kind of return to normal, when I think, you know, in an emergency, we let the government do what the government needs to do. But in this transition period, it's not good enough to just say to the government, you've got emergency powers, in fact, it's dangerous. And we need the public to be tied into what needs to be done, not least because it has implications for their behaviour. So I proposed in my blog, some kind of citizens assembly, which might help to guide the government, you know, the government in the end makes the decisions, but to guide the government in this transitional period. Uh, and then as I was preparing for this talk, uh, my colleague at the RSA sent me your article that was published, I think, yesterday or the day before, arguing very similarly for some form of deliberative process to advise government on how to handle the transition, but also what to do in terms of what's coming out of this crisis. So, uh, remind me of, of the reasoning that led you to, to, to write that piece, Margaret. Well, so um, there's a long section in my book um, about the Citizens' Assembly that was held in Ireland, uh, which covered five topics, but the one that's most well-known, of course, is the abortion amendment to the Irish Constitution. And um, I was asked, I guess, about 10 days ago to write something for the Business Post, which is a big... Sunday Irish um, publication. And, you know, and I was thinking, well, this is this is for Ireland and there's a lot about Ireland in my book. And I was thinking a lot about the post-pandemic settlement and everything that I learned in the course of researching the Citizens' Assembly in Ireland really informed my thinking about how do we how do we think about what's next? And um and so, I mean, I think there are a couple of things working here. One is, um, you know, I'd done the work, so it was very much front of mind. I was writing for an audience where I knew I didn't have to explain what the Citizens' Assembly was because they'd had the experience of it. I'd interviewed, you know, dozens of people who'd gone through it. Um, but I feel increasingly that, um, and this is not specific to the pandemic, but it's obviously relevant to it, that the looming issue for businesses in particular, and also governments, is this issue of legitimacy. And that the issue is not simply to come up with good choices, but to do so in such a way that they are felt as legitimate. And the triumph of the Irish Citizens' Assembly was not the result that came from the referendum, because some people agreed with that and some people didn't. The triumph was that both sides felt that the process had been legitimate and therefore they could live with the result. And that's a very, very potent um, sensation for a nation to have when confronting issues which are never, ever capable of being resolved in a way that everybody's going to be happy with them. So when you have these very divisive issues, and of course in the UK right now we are, or certainly pre-pandemic, we were very divided, and I would argue we still are. The issue can't be, when we're thinking about the future, that there's one maximal um, solution the question must be, how can we craft a solution that everybody can live with and that everybody feels has been achieved 
in the right way with the right voices and the right quality of thinking. And I think this is as true for governments as it is for business. And I think, um, you know, as an entrepreneur, I'm not naturally a process person, right? I'm, t- you know, I have a bias for action. But increasingly, I think that a lot of the mess we're in is because we jumped to conclusions that other people didn't understand or can't accept. And that's where having not put the right process in place really messes us up. I mean, I think there's something else. You know, I spent a lot of time um, a couple of months ago. I made a program for Radio 4 about um, how do people change their minds. And in the course of that, you know, talk to uh, James Fishkin about his, I don't know, what, 30 years by now, his work on the d- deliberative uh, democracy. And it's very clear that the process of citizens' assembly or deliberative processes creates an environment in which people think better and definitely do change their minds. And the left goes right and the right goes left and the center goes left or right, you know. But this myth that we've been saddled with, that people never change their minds, they're too biased to do so, I think is exceptionally dangerous and it's wrong. And the other thing I'd say, I guess, in, you know, in relation to the sort of coincidence of our thinking along the same lines is, you know, scientists understand this always happens. It's why there's always in science a kind of nasty fight over priority and why Nobel Prizes are often given to, you know, passionate rivals, you know, who are working in the same field. You know, there, there is a zeitgeist. There is a moment at which certain ideas seem possible and necessary and, um, you know, and it's the job of, you know, people like you and me to try to sense that. Well, thanks, Margaret. And um, by the way, anybody who wants to hear more about James Fishkin's ideas, he spoke at the RSA, I think, last year. And uh, uh, there's that video on our website. So, oh, Margaret, I, 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 it, with, with someone lesser than you, I, I wouldn't do this. But I'm going to ask you to to let me focus, continue to focus on this issue of the relationship between the crisis and what's going to come after it. And I'm going to rely on you to make references to your book as you go through so that we can use the time because there is so much irrelevance. I'm sure you can do that. So uh, uh, at the RSA, we, we, we have a, uh, um, a way of thinking about when crisis leads to long-term intentional change. Uh, and our suggestion is that it happens when three conditions, most likely to happen when three conditions are in place. Firstly, there is a prior demand for and capacity for change. The change doesn't just come from nowhere. It, it existed before. It was latent before. Secondly, the crisis not only reinforces that, but it prefigures in certain ways, in certain attitudes, certain practices, certain innovations, it prefigures the world that, that, that can be created. And then thirdly and critically, as you emerge from the crisis, while the Overton window is wider, as it were, there are the political alliances and the practical policy suggestions and innovations ready to take advantage of that moment. And I think deliberative democracy maybe fits all of those elements, the latent demand and capacity, it feels like it's at the moment. Um, if we are ready, we can possibly embed it in our democratic models. Do you, does that account fit your view of the relationship between crisis and change? I guess I don't tend to see it as neatly as that. I mean, 
I write a little bit in my book about theories of change, but really only, I have to say, pretty much to dismiss them um, because there's so many of them and none of them work all the time, uh, which means they're not really theories. They're just um, um, ideas. I think, um, and people focus on theories of change because they want uh, the kind of guarantee that a good theory can deliver. And I think the uncertainty that's endemic in our lives really militates against guarantees. So I don't think there's any harm in frameworks because they often illuminate opportunities you might not see otherwise. But I don't think there is a theory of change like there is a theory of gravity, which means actually it does work almost all the time in all conditions and you don't have to believe in it for it to be true. Right? Um, I think... You know, I th the reason my book ends talking about pandemics is, A, because people who've been thinking about pandemics, I think, are some of the finest thinkers about thinking about, in the area of thinking about the future. But also, pandemic is uh, intrinsically uncertain. And as such, I think it's quite an excellent way of thinking about not just epidemics, but life in general. So the thing that's true of an epidemic is it is generally certain. There have always been epidemics. All epidemiologists think there always will be. So they are generally certain, but they are specifically ambiguous. We don't know when they're going to break out or where they're going to break out or what the disease will be. And because every single one of them is unique, you can't deliver a profile of epidemics to look for and therefore spot early, and neither can you come up with a perfect profile that's going to fit responsiveness every single time. So they demand very high levels, <clears throat> excuse me, of adaptability, and they demand very high levels of um, situational creativity, if you like. But what they teach us is that However smart we are, however much data we have, however cool the technology is, however vigilant we are, there is always, 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 always going to be uncertainty in life. And one of the big arguments in my book is I think we've been lulled um, by technology and by people who would inflate the capability of technology. We've been lulled into a belief that everything in life can be predictable. And I think that's wrong. I think it's a deeply miserable view of human life, and I think it specifically reduces our capacity to respond. So, you know, the, mo the majority of my book is really, once you accept uncertainty is with us for keeps, what are the different ways you can think about it? And I think certainly crises release, as you say, they kind of release or reveal the latent capacity. Um but there's a really interesting question, which is, if that's the case, why don't we look for it anyway? Why don't we look before a crisis? Why don't we keep thinking about life, as I would say entrepreneurs think about life, to say, well, what is here that, you know, is changing? Where is there a capacity for something better? Where do we confront something that actually just doesn't work very well? I mean, I would dearly, dearly love to think that this crisis will provoke um, experimentation and openness to new ideas in a way that will enhance our, our democracy. That is the best hope I can think of coming out of this.
But there will always be a question in my mind, which was, what on earth made us think that for 70 years we could just leave democracy and let it become as stultified and archaic as in fact it became? And let us take a much more proactive view to the future and not just think, well, maybe we can stop it hitting us. Let's think about actually the future is something we are all engaged in, we are all involved in, and that we can all influence. So let's start thinking proactively instead of defensively about the future. And let us do that together because it's a better way to think. One of the, uh, I feel suitably chastened about the, my, my tendency to want kind of schematic accounts of the world. But um, uh, one of the, the the thoughts that your book reminded me of is the, on the importance of contingency in human affairs on the one hand and the importance of people, the importance of people and the choices that they make. And you refer, of course, to the AIDS crisis. And, 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 and as somebody who's old enough to remember that, I think it, it, one of the things I think it's important to, to share with people is that there was a point in that um, time, at that time, when it felt like it'd go in a very different direction to the way that it went. You know, it felt early on as though there was what was likely to happen was that the communities who were most affected uh, by the illness, and particularly the gay community, would kind of retreat. It would it would hide away even more than it had hidden away in the past, and that the that government would handle it by scapegoating those groups. I remember they used to put the three H's: homosexuals, hemophiliacs, and Haitians, and say, "Well, look, it's your problem." In a way that you know we we saw Donald Trump trying to do about the virus this time, but somehow in the middle of that, neither of those things came to pass, and instead, what happened was that the communities that were affected came out onto the streets, you know, gay men who were very, very sick came out and argued and, and fought for their rights. And, the, and, 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 similar, and governments, generally speaking, realised that in order to protect their populations, they shouldn't scapegoat people, they shouldn't increase fear, they should talk to people honestly about the nature of this illness and what people had to do. And the consequence of this was behaviour change in the communities that were affected fast tracking of a treatment, which means that HIV, AIDS is no longer um, even a chronic illness, and in time, changes to the look, to laws and attitudes which led to uh, liberation for, for the uh, gay and lesbian community. It's really important isn't it, to remember that it could, have gone, it could have gone both ways, and no predictive model would have told you which way it was going to go. It was because of human beings and the way they acted in that moment. So I think this is really important and I'm really pleased you drew that out because I think probably doing the research for that chapter changed me more than any other part of the book. And every book, you know, has changed me because it changes my understanding. But um, certainly talking to people who lived through this period who did not expect to be alive today was an extraordinary experience. And I think, um, you know, and I was alive during the, uh, you know, when the AIDS crisis started. I mean, I was a sentient professional grown up. Um, and I still think I didn't even begin to understand how awful it was. I mean, it isn't that people thought the gay community would retreat. There was a very high likelihood they would just all die. This was not a repeat, a, a retreat. I mean, I remember hearing David Hockney say that in one year he lost 40% of his friends. And this was also a moment where, by and large, the medical establishment did not want to know. They didn't think there was any money in it. 
So for years, they didn't do anything. And the American government voted money, which it never released. So this, you know, this is an exceptionally terrible, terrible existential crisis where, you know, governments that you might expect would do something really didn't. Um, in Britain, we were lucky to have the NHS where at least care was better. You know, at least patients weren't turned away from hospitals and undertakers didn't just hand out bin bags. But um, globally, this was an experience where a whole community spent over 15 years watching their friends die and not being able to do anything about it. I mean, at one point in America, someone died of AIDS every minute. So, and this is, you know, this is the depths of uncertainty, which is it's uncertain what the disease is. It's uncertain if you can find a cure. There are many incurable diseases in the world today. It was unclear where help would come from. It was unclear where money would come from. It was unclear what would work. And really the story of of overcoming AIDS, which is an extraordinary story, is just throwing at it every single thing you can think of. And you can look back and see what worked. And I think we should, because I think there are a million lessons in this for us with regards to climate change. And every survivor of the AIDS epidemic that I interviewed drew that analogy. But I think what it also shows us is that very neat, tidy, planned, efficient, formulaic approaches to crises don't work. They're too slow. The situation is too complex. And if you wait for the perfect meticulous plan, it's going to come too late. And my big fear in our thinking about the future with regards to climate change is our preference for a neat, tidy solution will mean that we leave things too late. And time is, as in all crises, it is of the essence. And I don't think we can afford to wait for that neat, joined-up, globalized plan. I mean, I'd love one to emerge, but we have wasted 30 years waiting for one to emerge so I think it's all hands on deck now. I think that, uh, you know, what we should do will emerge. And I think there's a lot we can learn from the AIDS crisis about how that happens. Specifically, two things, really. As one of them, one of Rupert Whitaker said to me, who was um, a friend of Terence Higgins, he said, in the end, what worked was expertise and shame. Right? Shame that got pharmaceutical companies eventually to do something and expertise which was the gay community understood as much about AIDS and drug development as pharma did so that although they started as bitter foes they could end up working together and I think there's a very difficult lesson to swallow in this which is actually when it comes to climate change, we are going to have to sit down with fossil fuel companies because we need everybody and we need every form of expertise if we're going to do what needs to get done in the next 10 years. Um, Margaret, you've, um, uh, as I said, you've, you've, you've challenged a kind of over-schematic view of the relationship between crisis and a new world. But let me try another RSA idea on you, which, um, again kept coming to my mind reading Uncharted, which is 
we advocate as a mindset, as an approach to change, um, a, a phrase we, we use is that you should think like a system and act like an entrepreneur. And that idea uh, really did come back to me again and again, that, 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 that the response to uncertainty is to be able to, get the, to, be able to think systemically, but to be able to put that around systemic alliances of actors, but to have this readiness, not one of the ways we put this is to say to people, don't think about the change you want to achieve. Think about the change that's actually possible, given the nature of the system uh, 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 at the moment. Does that chime with the argument you're making in the book, Margaret? I think it's a very nice way of thinking about it. And I think it's particularly a nice way of thinking about it because um, as an entrepreneur, I never expected um, to be right first time right? Which is you have an idea and for whatever reason, it's so compelling, you think, well, let's give it a shot. And of course, investors ask you for all sorts of guarantees that this is going to make everybody rich, famous and happy. But the truth is, the gut of an entrepreneur says, I can't not try this. And I think that's exactly what one needs confronting uncertainty, which is, if you have ideas about how you might do something better, the only way to find out if they're going to work is to try them. You can't figure it out by sitting uh, and doing a computer simulation. You can't sit and figure it out by doing a spreadsheet simulation. You have to get out there and try it. And in the course of trying it, you learn. And in the course of learning, you change. And in the course of change, you kind of become the future and start to make it. And I think really there are two ways of thinking about this. One is to think of it as an entrepreneur. I think that's absolutely right. Um, and I think the other way to think about it is to think about it as artists think. So artists start off without, with a sense of something that they want to do and they move towards it. But again, at no point are they looking for guarantees. They take risks with themselves. Investing in the wrong project, you know, can waste time, effort, energy, opportunity. They aren't constantly checking along the way to see, is it going to be successful? Because they know they don't know. I think as an occupation, artists contain and live with uncertainty more than any other occupation I can think of. And when it gets hard, they don't quit. Because when it gets hard, they know that they're really hitting bedrock and getting somewhere. And they are also, of course, super sensors. You know, they pick up what's going on in the world all the time because that's the way their brains work. So whether it's entrepreneurs or artists, I think... Both of these have a lot to teach us in terms of thinking more freely and in a less constrained mind. And I think that, you know, the last hundred years of scientific management has spectacularly constrained people's capacity to think imaginatively. Um, we've become rather obsessed with incrementalized chain change, you know, make it a little bit better and then a little bit better and fix some more bugs and make it a little bit better, do A-B testing. And there's nothing wrong with that, except that it won't get you to a great idea. It'll take an okay idea and make it better. But in terms of really fresh thinking and understanding, you know, the huge opportunities that lurk within a system, it won't get you there. So, 
I think, you know, I, I think that our obsession with scientific management and incrementalization, um, the fault with it is simply that it's become such a dominant way of thinking. And what we need to do is kind of balance that with a very different, more experimental, more creative, more entrepreneurial way of thinking to spot the opportunities that incrementalization is never, ever going to get us to. Margaret, we've nearly run out of time, but there's one other question I, I really wanted to pose to you because um, you've worked with uh, and advised some of the most uh, senior business leaders uh, around the world. Now, I was just talking to Kevin Rudd, the former Prime Minister of Australia, and reflecting with him that he talked a lot about the 2008 financial crisis because, of course, he was central then to bringing together a kind of global leaders to, to tackle that crisis. Now, of course, that was a crisis that was, in many ways, the responsibility of big business and particularly finance. But since then, there's been a big shift, it seems to me. I, I don't know whether you'd agree, but I often find that business leaders are more able to talk about long term. They're more able to talk about climate change. They're more able to kind of talk about the need to address these structural challenges, often than politicians, today's politicians are. And we've seen a huge growth in corporate commitment, including in finance, big finance, to environmental and social uh, responsibility. Do you think that in relation to, as we come out of this crisis and in relation to climate change, do you think that the business community, who were, as it were, the problem in the last occasion, could actually be the ones who lead us at this time? Kevin's view was that, yes, it was true of business leaders that they felt this way and that they had that kind of vision, not many of them. But he said the problem is they are always wary about being the first ones out of the trenches, the first ones into the battle. So my question to you is, can Bart business be a progressive force in the face of what we're, we're, we're facing? And, and what could we do to persuade some of those business leaders and finance leaders not to wait for the politicians, because they might have to wait a long time, but to be the first to put their head above the parapet? Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, I think you make some excellent points. I, th I definitely believe that business can be a tremendous source of change um, with regard to climate change and every other challenge that we face. Um, I mean, we're seeing some businesses step up right now, obviously, um, and we need all of them to step up with climate change because they're all going to have to change if they're going to not be a force for ill in the face of the environment. Um, I think the difficulty is a, a sort of a problem of conformity and timidity. So I'm very struck by the fact, for example, that every business leader I know and talk to and work with really admires Paul Pullman. But none of them really was prepared to be Paul Pullman. So I see, you know, a kind of, a kind of desire for... Um, epoch-changing leadership, but not necessarily the muscle for it. And there are lots of alibis provided for this in terms of shareholder value and stuff like that. But I think there's a kind of, you know, there's a sort of thing where nobody really wants to go first. And whether this crisis, the pandemic crisis, will change that, I really don't know. I mean, certainly everybody's paying a lot more lip service to looking after people and their employees and their workforce, and maybe even in some cases suppliers. So there's a, a deeper recognition now, I think, than there was pre-pandemic 
of the fundamental, fundamental, ineradicable relationship between business and society and an understanding that actually without society, there is no business. But whether they'll really kind of, whether business leaders will really take courage from this or whether they'll just yearn for a return to business as usual and a simple, what seems like a simpler way of life. I think that's you know going to be the defining question of our age. I think post-crisis there will be crisis exhaustion, and that's dangerous because we have a bigger crisis than a pandemic facing us. And I guess I would go back to my book and you know, and if again thinking about you know the, the AIDS crisis, you know what what solved that? What solved it was everybody and everything. And so, yes, I think we need business and I think there's huge capacity in business and in the workforces in business, a huge latent energy for change and bold initiative, hugely among young people in particular. So, of course, we need business. Of course, we need government. We need government that's more adaptable, more uh, responsive and better at listening, more creative, less hidebound, um, less celebritized and more prepared to try stuff and acknowledge when it does work and when it doesn't work and not to be, you know, strung up by the nearest lamppost because something turns out not to be perfect. I think we need the collective action and intelligence of the population and we need every discipline known to man. So I think the key thing here for leadership is we need leaders with tremendous talents to convene, to bring the right cross-section of people to decision-making, to learn how to listen to each other and to have confidence in each other's ability to craft better solutions that people can live with. And that power of convening has not typically been seen as an essential part of leadership, but I think it absolutely will be for the foreseeable future. Well, I think for anybody who wants to develop the muscles uh, of leadership, uh, of taking responsibility, of creativity, uh, of living in a world of uncertainty, I can't recommend any better starting point than your book, Margaret. Uh, thank you so much for the time uh, that you've uh, given us. Um, do get hold of Uncharted. Even uh, presumably, it's available as an ebook, Margaret. Uh, it is available as an ebook or a hardback book. And at some point, when you know we're let go, I'll even do an audio book. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe we can get you in person to the RSA when things have moved on. Uh, I'd love that. Uh, thank you, Margaret, very much. Uh, before we sign off, a quick reminder to everyone watching to stay tuned to the RSA's channels and social media feeds in the coming weeks for all the latest events and podcast announcements, as well as news from our policy research team and our 30,000 strong network of fellows, all of whom are working to build a better world both during and after this crisis. Thank you again, Margaret, and thank you for watching. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews and animations.